and welcome to the AWS Developer Podcast. I'm thrilled to be here with you. I'm Emily. I'm here with my co-host, Dave Spitsky. And our guest today is Quibus uh, Bernard. Can I say your full name? Yeah, you're welcome to say the full name. It is amazing. Uh, it's it's because it's amazing. It's Jacobus, uh, wait, Hercules Bernard, which I'm like, yes, bad name. Uh, awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so you are originally from South Africa, correct? Yes, I recently ish moved to the US uh, in December, actually, last year. So it's been six months almost to the day in the US and adapting to the interesting culture here. <laughs> Interesting culture. Um, so many directions I could take that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the wrong side of the road, the wrong date format, you know, how the banking system is broken. Yeah, loose guns laws. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so, you, um, when did you get your furniture? How long did it take for your furniture to come? Uh, furniture arrived middle of May. So, that was what? About five months odd without furniture, but we did make good use of Goodwill, which is something I have not experienced before. So it's been interesting. Yes. Goodwill is fantastic. My favorite thing about Goodwill, if I can just um, <laughs> shout out to them. Like them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, a lot of people here use Salvation Army, but what they don't know is Salvation Army is a private company. Um, and Goodwill in particular hires felons. And I used to work with felons. And it's really, really hard in America having a felony on your record. Um because it just eliminates so many different rights. And when it makes it hard to get a job, you know, it turns in that every sentence is a life sentence and that's not fair. So I, I was always really appreciative that Goodwill would hire um, previously convicted felons. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Afrikaans? Because, well, can you speak <laughs> a little bit of Afrikaans? I can for sure I love it. It's like such a dancey, dancey language. Like it feels like, like you know what I mean? It's a happy it's, language. Well, like that first was a slow you version. It, you're like, did somebody slip me something? Because it's like so <laughs> close to your normal English flow, but then it like gets mixed up a little bit. You know, we're like a lot of languages. Like one of the amazing things I got to do with Amazon was travel through most of Western Europe. I think I actually hit all the countries. And when you don't know, like when your brain doesn't take a language and convert it into words, you hear the melody of language. Yes. That makes sense. You've, you've experienced this, Emily? Like I used to sit on just like on trains. I would go into churches and I would just hear people. And it's like this, it's like a song. It's like up and down and there's a chorus and there's a bass line. And that's what we're picking up when you say it's that. We're telling you it's a very cool song. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll uh, I'll slot a band. Um, no, the one interesting thing, uh, well, one of the interesting things about Afrikaans is that we do a, a double negative when we say something. So I'll say it's not raining now, not, um, and then sometimes that comes through when you translate to English. It's like confused, like why is there a double negative? That's kind of amazing, though. But like, I like that there's a lot of clarity with that. You're like, no, thank you, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. Would you like some bread? No, thank you, no. Okay, get your breadbasket away from me. Um, so you were telling me about Afrikaans, and it is derived from the Dutch language, but it's yes. split off. Yes. So, yeah, tell us more about that. Um, so I don't know the exact story behind that, but basically what it boils down to is that while it sounds similar to Dutch and there's a lot of shared words, the whole sentence construction and um Basically, how we use it is different. So some words even have completely different um, meanings um, in the language. And um, if we speak slowly, they can understand us. If we speak slowly, um, 
Oh, sorry, if they speak slowly and vice versa. So we can kind of follow, but it's it's hard enough that you have to really concentrate. That's amazing. I really, I, I was listening um, to a TikTok yesterday on the Scots language that I, I didn't fully appreciate it, that it was a separate language because the, the English went on a, you know, centuries long campaign to get rid of everything Scottish. And so um, yeah, they're fighting oh. to bring it back. And it's just interesting because like Afrikaans to Dutch, Scots has a lot of shared vocabulary, but it does have its own separate, um, I think it's called orthography, ortho something. Um, we need a linguist on this podcast. <laughs> basically, <laughs> I'm not qualified to ask these questions, but I'm excited. Now, you are on my team within AWS. You're in DevRel. Tell us more yes. about that. Like, What do you do um, within DevRel? At the moment, or over the, the multiple different changes, um, <laughs> it's been a fun one. So I've been really? here for three and a half years now. I've had five managers, I think. Oh. Um, yeah. No, so there's been there's been a bit of change going um, around this. Um, but basically, started off as the regional developer advocate covering sub-Saharan Africa, which meant, which sounds scary, fifty-seven ish countries. Jeez. But in actual fact, um, if you look at the adoption and usage, you mainly focus on the the top few. Uh, countries South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, um, Zambia to an extent. Um, I'm missing one, Ghana. There we go. So okay. I've been to all of those as well, which was absolutely insane and a lot of fun and interesting. Um, and just a pro tip if you do want to get into a fight, especially if you go to Ghana and uh, Nigeria, yeah. just tell whichever country you're in that the other country's um, uh, jollof rice is better. Oh, than, yes. Uh, I desperately want to try jollof rice and I can't because I, well, I looked up a recipe. So my friends went to uh, Lagos and I was like, okay, I'm going to try this because they, they raved about it. Mm-hmm. And then I looked up a recipe and it was peppers. I just don't have access to like, there's just, there's peppers I've never heard of. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah. I really want to try it out. That's awesome. How does, yeah. I, can we talk about tech in Africa for a little bit? Oh, sure. It's one of my favorite topics. Okay, amazing. I think that some of the biggest kind of leaps forward we'll see over the next decade will come out of Africa, Latin America, um, certain parts of Asia. Like those areas are, in my opinion, solving for problems that we just don't see in our sort of Americanized uh, Western Europe view. Well, it's it's actually even more than that. It's also well. So firstly, you tend to be problem solving day in and day out because remember this is um, and I don't mean this in a mean way. It's third world country in the sense that things aren't sorted out there yet. You have to make a plan for basically everything that you do every single day. So in yeah. terms of like the um, the ideas that come out there and how to approach the problems is that's just what people are geared for. The other thing that uh, we often joke about there is like we've seen companies from Europe and the, um, the US come in and try and, you know, solve things. So what they do is they come in yeah. with a mobile app built for iOS. Um, guess what? iOS is not that popular in Africa. Um, Android <laughs> and even third and fourth um, hand cell phones is like the norm. So a lot of non-feature phones. So mm-hmm. great example of this is there was a startup, I think in Nigeria, where you can order a drone to come spray your crops using the um, USSD interface on your non-smartphone. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That is really, really cool. Yeah. And I think the other angle that people don't appreciate is obviously with um, the African currencies being a lot weaker than international currencies, anything that costs money 
um, is something you try and avoid and minimize. So like, for example, just spinning up specific services, you would avoid certain things just because there's a base cost a month. Even if it's just $10, mm -hmm. that might be too much. You would rather spend the money on the thing that actually does the work or solves the problem that you're trying to build. So there's a very yeah. heavy emphasis on you know DIY and keeping costs low. Yes, absolutely. I, I it's, It seems like there's a, a focus on efficiency, which I also really appreciate because I think in some ways um, when... Uh, Darko was on. We were talking a little bit about you the know, slaughterer. The slaughterer. Did you know his last name? Mesarosh means the slaughter. I was like, Mesarosh. They have. Mesarosh. I will send you the picture. I will send you a picture, Emily, of these two. It's not Darko and not Kobus. I, I, I have. I. Really? I was laughing. <laughs> well, brothers. I mean, well, that's just a, that's yeah. just the name of the YouTube channel, by the way. <laughs> Literally, not Kobus, not Darko. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna find it. I'm gonna find it. Now. Wait, wait till I, wait till no, I'm sees this. I'm sending. It, it, I just sent it to you on Slack. I love this. You guys are so, so it, awesome. Emily, wait cracking. till you get into conversations <laughs> where people not only confuse us, they attribute work to the wrong person. So they'll go Stop. like, "Hey, Quibus, great oh, on my. that live video stream that you did." I'm like, "Uh, that was Darko." Really? <laughs> yep. Internally, like in our own, because we, we were both oh, part of the EMEA Devrel team, it would happen yep. inside that team. So people you work with daily. Oh wow! I yeah. love how I love how in this in this uh, in this image you're like smiling so much, and Darko looks like someone just told him that he's going to have to stay after class. No, no, that's just Darko's standard Eastern <laughs> European face. <laughs> All right, let me pull this up. I want to see. Oh yeah, yeah. See, I mean, not Kobus, not Darko. <laughs> we gotta put this in the show notes. That's amazing. Yeah, we got it. We got it. Uh, yeah. It really is. Okay, one other question before we move on from tech in Africa. How how would you ask that vendors or cloud companies, including AWS, show up as a better partner? I feel like it is such a diverse continent. There are, like you were saying, I mean, the coverage there as far as countries, it's massive. And then that's not even talking about the various cultures and languages. Um so what's the best sort of approach? Or like if you had if in a perfect world, how how should we better engage? African developers. That that is a that's a very broad and a tough one. Um, and also, I mean, just for context, in Africa's got some like thousand five hundred plus languages. Just to put it in context. Yeah. And we always joke about like, sorry, this uh, Americans refer to you know the country of Africa because we're all one country. Um, but yeah, I think the the biggest thing that I found um, with the work there is that the showing up in person had probably the biggest impact. Um, so. Hopping on, let's say, a remote meetup to help and things, they really appreciate the help that, but being there in person was like a massive thing. Like, uh, we did a whole startup tour through, um, Kenya, uh, Ghana and Nigeria in, uh, August 2019, um, yeah. where we had the startup days. And then in between, I did meetups and went out to meet the tech people. Um, and just having those conversations one on one with them and building the relationships was absolutely, um, great. It's like, I think that's probably the biggest one. The second part, I think, is on the, let's say, what, how to engage with them is to understand that. There's a lot, I think, that you might assume, like knowledge, uh, prior experience, that just isn't there. And also the way that we touched on earlier, like problem solving, the way you approach the problems is mm -hmm. different. So it's not just a, hey, I'm going to go build a startup. Let me slot in the three or four SaaS providers that solve X, Y, and Z. And then you know that racks up a $200 main baseline bill per month. That just yeah. isn't going to work. They'll rather go build things with open source themselves because it's cheaper if you look at the monthly bill. Amazing. Such, such interesting problems to s solve. And I feel like your background gives you a good insight into everything you're doing at Amazon. 
And one of the things I wanted to talk about today is you've got a Twitch channel, you've got a YouTube channel, and I'll share all that in the show notes. Inactive. <laughs> There's so much exist. content on there, though, but because <laughs> you've done this really cool series and getting started with Terraform on AWS, which I think our listeners will really appreciate. It's, you know, you're, as I was going through the videos, you know, you're opening it up, you're opening up Cloud9 and you're immediately starting and you're walking through and you're, you're sharing kind of like how to actually get, get stuff done. So for the audience, why don't we baseline Terraform for a little bit, you know, how that fits into infrastructure as code, the benefits of it, the terms, and then we can kind of walk through what made you, you have this passion for it and, and you've had this content around it. And so let's, let's just start <laughs> with baselining the tech for, for audience that maybe hasn't touched it yet. Okay. I think, yeah, let's do that. And then we dive into why I ended up with Terraform versus all of the other options available out there. So effectively, Terraform is a infrastructure as code um, tool. And what that means is literally you define your infrastructure using text files. They go into some kind of version control repository, usually gets given the standard at the moment. And then from there, um, you apply the, um, it to your infrastructure to actually build it out, whether that's someone like running it on the local um, laptop or desktop, or if you've got a CI CD pipeline that does it automatically for you. But effectively, you define, I want a load balancer with three instances with, let's say, this DNS setup for it, go build it, and then Terraform takes care of it. Now, what gets really interesting is how it does it under the hood, which is you define your infrastructure in these text files, then Terraform has got its own state file that it uh, updates every time it runs. So when it completes a run, it's, it updates that to say, what was the world looking like after I last applied infrastructure changes? Um, then when it comes to the next run, it takes what you want it to be, which is your text files, what it knew it was in its state file, and then compares it with whatever API needs to run against to see what does the world currently look like. And it spits out a plan for what it wants to change. So it'll show you exactly um, um, what it wants to change. So you can review that and then you say, okay, cool, take this plan and go apply it. Or you can obviously go the YOLO lifestyle and just say Terraform apply, yes, don't look at anything and run. Um, that might end in unpleasant circumstances because certain resources can be modified in place. Other ones have to be torn down and recreated. So that's where some of the challenges like databases, you don't want to accidentally just tear down the database and redo it. Um, and then the other part that makes Terraform so awesome for infrastructure is that it's not just limited to cloud infrastructure. It's uh, Initially, all the providers were bundled into the primary binary, which is written in Go. So it's a single file you download to work with for Terraform. There's no massive install or anything. But then they split them out given the volume of providers. And I think they're up to probably in the thousands of providers now. So you get a provider even for like networking gear or um, I know uh, Karim, the DA for HashiCorp, built a provider for Twitter. So you can literally send tweets out by defining them in text and have Terraform apply them to the Twitter API to send them out. One of the things to me that was so appealing in this, and we can kind of walk through it, is one, it's open source, and two, it's multi-cloud. Yes. So <clears throat> we've done a bunch of cloud formation and CDK on this podcast. And so I think the audience is, is, is fairly familiar. And if not, maybe you want to just kind of define what YAML is and those things. But Terraform is a way to actually write to HCL, I think it is, yes. right? Like a way to, um, configuration language, yeah. Right. So it's a way to write once and then deploy many across all of your, your multi-cloud infrastructure. Yeah. Correct. No, definitely. Um, on the HCL, the other part with the providers that's also important to know is because it supports multiple providers, it means you can mix and match. So in a previous life, what I would do is I would set it up to use GitHub as a data source. 
pull people's public SSH keys from there and then use the chef provider to actually push those keys into um, the chef config to deploy to the actual service to give people access. So obviously, in chef, it knows who's got access to which server, but I don't care what public keys they use. They just go and update their GitHub ones and then on the next run, it'll update the service and they can get in. So less headaches for me. Um, so that aspect is also very, very interesting. We start mixing and matching and combining different um, like resources and infrastructure together. Yeah, and so how does it handle credentials? Like, how do you set up all of those configurations? Is it integrated with IAM? How does that kind of work? So effectively, it depends on what the provider uses by default. So if you look at the AWS provider, it can use environmental variables. It can use the credentials file um, that you set up when you set up uh, the CLI or the SDK. Um, you can physically code it inside the files. Obviously, you don't want to um, code credentials into a text file that you accidentally commit because that will lead to you having a bad day again. But effectively, it uses whatever. So when you look, for example, at GitHub, it can use either, once again, the AWS context, the code star connection um, as a credential source to then uh, do certain things, or it can use a token that it reads from environment variable. It literally depends on what the provider is configured to actually uh, do that. Um, so they built it in a way that it can adopt any one of those um, methods, basically. Um, okay, so we want... <laughs> I said we're clapping. We're clapping. All right, we're go clapping. ahead. Clapping. I'm trying to help you. My brother's in AV. He's always like clap. Oh, really? Also, also you I've peek, Emily. Constantly peeking. Um, it's energy. It makes brings energy to the room. It's like you clapped and summoned the uh, the enthusiasm. I love uh, it. Uh, unless you do it over a noise canceling microphone, in which case you just go. That's amazing. <laughs> um, okay. So one of the great advantages here, if I'm understanding correctly, is splitting things out into different smaller components. I think we call them modules, correct? Uh, yeah. So there, there are two ways you can approach this. The first, and this is also a very nice thing about Terraform, is it effectively takes a directory and anything with a .tf extension concatenates into a single file and then figures out what the dependency is between all the resources you create. So you don't have to worry about if you want to move things between files in the same directory, just reorganize things. So it'll pick that up um, easily. Um, okay. What you're talking about now is modules. So what that means is you effectively take just once again more Terraform files, put them in a directory, and then you can reference them as a unit. So you would define input variables for that, let's say, module. Then uh -huh. you just have the normal Terraform resource in then whatever combination you want. You can even mix providers if you want. Um, so for example, let's say a microservice uh, implementation I did a while back was the service module. It would ask you for what's the service name, CPU resources and a couple of other things. And then it would actually go create the infrastructure to run the container plus, um, let's say, any, anything around that, attach it to the load balancer, register a couple of checks with Datadog, um, and then set up whatever else you want just from a module. And effectively, it's literally just a couple more files, and that's a module. Then you can decide, you know, I want to publish this module. And there are a couple of ways to do that. You can either just put it inside a, a Git repo and then reference it from there, or you can put it inside the Terraform registry publicly. Um, and just reference it. And once again, because it's just text, you can just go and edit and change things. And it's got a versioning mechanism in it to deal with that as well. Uh, so yeah. it's a really powerful way just to build these building blocks. And the nice thing there is you don't have to do it right now from the start. It's as you go along and figure out things are different, then you say, okay, cool, let's start extracting this into the module and then swap out your infrastructure to use the module. Um, because guess what? It'll just go through the pipeline and you know apply the changes and keep track of things for you. Okay. And then how every time I hear someone talk about this, we... We put so many pieces of information into these 
configuration files. Like, you know, in, in one sentence, we talked about Datadog and the CPU um, requirements and all of this. If someone's just getting started on this, I think that would be super overwhelming. What's the best way for them to kind of get used to the thinking or the thought process around how to even approach this? Um, so recommendation there is start with something small that you know will not break. And if it does break in production, you it won't call a, cause a massive outage. So the way I recommend this normally is like think of like let's say a new service you're going to launch or something, get it into the config, figure out you know all the problems around what config values need to apply to it and get it going, etc. Um, and then what you do is roll it out to the dev environment because um, as the saying goes, like everybody's got um, wait how does it go? Everybody's got testers. Some people are just happy that it isn't their users in their production environment. Or something along that. those lines. But yeah, so basically run it and develop um, in your developer um, environment, figure out the kinks, then just apply it to production and, you know, effectively see what happens. Because um, if you think about it, at the end of the day, the worst can happen is the, conf the infrastructure is wrongly configured or broken. And unfortunately, experience just means you know how things break and how not to break them in the future. It doesn't mean you really know what you're doing. It just means avoiding past mistakes. So yeah, dropping a database in production, done that. Nice. <laughs> and what about version control? Have you worked with customers that have very large deployments, big developer teams? What are kind of those that real world developer gotchas mm. that people might be interested in? How, how, how are you seeing version controlling, unit testing, all of that kind of going? Is it integrated code commit, Git, or do you see custom built solutions, those type of things? Um. So on the version control, yes, it's got the mechanisms built in on multiple levels. So firstly, on the provider level, you can pin a version. You can say um, semantic version like this version or higher, but keep it lower than that. So you can pin the specific uh, versions of the providers. Terraform itself also keeps track in the state file what version of Terraform was last used to actually um, change the infrastructure. If you go to a newer version, obviously, it updates the state file, and then it'll warn you not to uh, change that. Um, I actually did a whole make file on doing a MD5 hash on the binary across operating systems just to make sure that the developers don't make mistakes because inevitably someone somewhere is going to just upgrade to the latest and then run it and then you're going to go oh, crap, yeah. now the whole company has to upgrade. So that, how often that is version, it updated too, by the way? Uh, fairly often. Um, I so it's more say, like CDK. Yeah. Yeah, they 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 probably have versions coming out. I want to say at least once a week. Last time I checked. Um, Okay. And yeah, so definitely. on that, this is one of the things like I would love more companies to do. Go look at the release notes. Um, they've got exact details of what's new, what's been fixed, uh, what bugs were there, what's changed. And if there's, for example, there's an, uh, between a version that you have to do a specific upgrade step, it's included in those release notes. Um, so the they change log files are absolutely amazing. Um, that was one of the ways I actually figured out which versions I want to go to just by looking what's coming out on this one. Do we upgrade or not? Um, without having to go to a separate page or anything. So they've got that. Then also on the modules, you can actually version pin them as well. So th assuming that you are versioning your modules, which you should and not just YOLO through life, um, but basically set the pin version and decide what your upgrade path is because you can then start doing interesting things like let's upgrade the pin version to a new one, roll that out to develop uh, the developer environment or development environment and see what happens and what works because ultimately you can read as many docs as you want but unless you test it on a real world scenario you're not going to know what breaks got it and like speaking of real world scenario how well is do we do a good job at aws integrating cloud formation 
is does terraform do a good job with aws was there any gotchas <laughs> that you saw in between those things because I know when you, uh, yeah, it's like, is, 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 are people listening here? Don't say the wrong thing. But, you know, I think oh, yeah. people respect the show in that we're vocally self-critical. Uh, Emily and I don't think that we know much at all. Much we're at constantly all. learning. Well, Emily knows everything. <laughs> I don't know much at all. No, I, I go uh, into meetings. Yeah. I always say, I call it IAS. It's idiot as a service. <laughs> right, always. exactly. I'm like, uh, best I could do for you is connect you with someone smarter than me and listen. Mm. You know, but is there... Are, if, if I want people that listen to the show, and this is why we have folks like you on. It's like, look here, this is it. These are the resources. Make sure you click it through the show notes. This is like, we want you to just go from starting, you heard about this on the podcast, to actually be able to do something cool at work and get that raise, right? So is oh, yeah. there any kind of gotchas or anything in there? Firstly, I think on the, how's it different from CloudFormation and CDK? Um, I'd say the biggest difference there is that CloudFormation and CDK both, well, CDK uses CloudFormation and CloudFormation use internal providers that we built to interact with the different services. Um, I believe using the publicly available APIs, um, whereas Terraform just uses those public APIs directly. So the difference here is that if you want to use something in CloudFormation, someone at AWS um, probably has to go build that provider and update it with some of the new features. When the Terraform side, they obviously look at the API and then build against that. Um, and also AWS has got a strong relationship and partner um, partnership with them. So I know, for example, way back when EKS launched, they actually launched with Terraform support on day one um, when nice. the service came out. Yeah, because they were working with, obviously with the internal teams. And where that becomes interesting, and this is the part that will, could possibly get me into trouble, is that you will often find Terraform support for AWS services before you find it in CloudFormation. Um, right. which obviously and we're working on fixing that yeah. things like yeah. cloud API and cloud. That is a known thing that we've heard as somebody who sits in developer tools. I can tell you it's absolutely been heard. We know the feedback. We need to have as much coverage for every AWS service available <clears throat> in cloud formation. Yeah. Cloud API is amazing. I, I think such a good thing. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I agree. It's, I uh, it definitely yeah. solves a lot of things. Yeah. They will. I never pre announce shows, but I was talking to those folks like three months ago to come on the show. They're just busy building. So they'll eventually get on here. Uh, I talk to the PM over t all the time over Slack. They're just, they're just doing awesome things. So we'll, we'll get them on here to talk. That's fantastic. Yeah. No, I was going to say it's a great, it's a great time of the year to ask them because everybody's gearing up for big reinvent launches. So oh, they should have think about reinvent. <laughs> I know. I was a little horrified when in May I got my first reInvent email. I'm like, could I get six months, please? And you went all out at reInvent last year. I was like, oh, it's like, no. it's like the 60, 60, uh, what is it? It's like, in a, in your, you don't want to run as fast as you can in the beginning. And I, I saw that Emily was like a hundred miles an hour for three days. <laughs> I was like, please take off like three weeks after this. Yeah. Pass out was, in the airport. I mean, my body was here, but my brain was like, bye bye. <laughs> but that first reinvent, that first, that first reinvent, even with COVID, it's always amazing for everyone. Like, I remember the first time I went there, and like, you just feel part of something in, enormous and bigger than you. There's people yeah. from every country, every background. It's exciting, you know? Yeah. I look forward to experiencing that. <laughs> no, it was an amazing experience. I am a little nervous for this year because. Um, I've been told last year was like a fifth of the normal size and that this year will be closer to its normal size. Um, I thought last year was very pleasant. I think uh, we should go back to that. I think <laughs> just <laughs> you'll be out, you'll be up on stage keynoting the atom or something. Yeah, gonna, they, they don't the whole fly me in. It's not like I get hella dropped onto stage. <laughs> <laughs> I 
still have to exist. That would be awesome. You should come in. They should do like music. It should be like dun, 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 yes. dun, like smoke. Yes. Like that. We're in Vegas. I'm going to get so up yeah. from LA. Why not? Like strap me to some kind of thing, like flying mechanism. <laughs> and we're going to go. And there's going to be acrobatics. And it'll be great. Well, it'd be a whole thing. Um, <laughs> they're like frugality, Emily. Frugality. We don't pay Cirque du Soleil. Um, but then you okay. counter with think big. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I love it. That's right. It trumps it. <laughs> it has been such a pleasure having you on. You're incredible um, and brilliant. And so where can people find you if they want more of your content? Um, so easiest is probably Twitter. Uh, so just name and surname, it was Bernard. Um, on YouTube, I couldn't figure that out, so I'm. Um, I think uh, Cloud Quibus there, um, and then pretty much the lucky thing is oh, you can just search for Quibus Bernard to find Quibus me. Dash YouTube with your Bitly. Ah yes, oh that as well. I forgot about that one. Um, but basically, Long you can just Google my name because I'm lucky. No one else is my name, so I'm very easy to find, and also very easy then to find when I got in trouble. That's true. And your name, uh, just to be clear, is Darko Mesarosh, I believe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good no, one. I'm jealous of the unique names because uh, let's see. There's a British sprinter. She was an Olympian um, named Emily Freeman. There is a Christian writer named Emily Freeman. I'm like, get off my Google results, people. Jeez, mine's a fake. Mine's a fake last name, so it's like no, it's an Ellis Island name. The original Zebecki. There's any Zebeckis out there? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Polish cousins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just an Ellis Island. It says not many. That's amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Quibus. Again, it was so lovely having you. Um, thanks for sharing all your knowledge. No, oh, pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you, sir. Pleasure having you on. <laughs>